to sleep, Mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And sitting in the second chair this week in the place of Murdoch, it's uh, executive producer Leif. Merry Christmas. Uh, get involved. We are the story guys at gmail.com. We got a note uh, this week to kick off the show. As we near the Yuletide season, he writes, I find myself unable to escape the music that goes along with it. I need you to help me understand something. What the hell is the whole David Bowie, Bing Crosby, drummer boy thing about? Thanks, Evan in Illinois. <laughs> All right. So, Brian, this is, I'm a little older than you, and I grew up with MTV. So let me just tell you how a young Leif Benson was introduced <laughs> to David Bowie. It was with Bing Crosby and David Bowie singing Little Drummer Boy. That was number one because they played it nonstop. So, so this is your entry point. This is your uh, entry yes. Point. It was it was Little Drummer Boy. Let's dance. Yeah, and then Mick Jagger and David Bowie dancing, dancing in, the in the streets. That's that's what I thought David Bowie was for so long. Just this weird poppy dude for the longest time. And then I realized I was wrong. <laughs> well, so I've been thinking about my relationship with this song. To me, it's always just been something that exists in, in pop culture. And I think a lot of people that are my age and maybe even a little bit older than me may have encountered david bowie first and then had to be informed on who bing crosby was and maybe even I, like i'm curious when you saw this did you have any context for bing crosby like did you watch white christmas as a kid no no i've never seen white christmas i had no idea who bing crosby was he's just an old I mean, dude with david bowie yeah bing crosby pretty much died around the time i was born so right yeah. right right he was net he was just that old guy that saying old songs to me. Yeah, okay, so perfect. So we've probably talked about this before, but as a middle schooler who had a... I was cut off from pop culture by my parents, modern pop culture, it, because they were so conservative, I went backwards to the pop culture of their parents. This was strategic, all right? I was like, give me something good, and the thing that didn't have any locks on the drawers was like big band music and radio comedy, stuff that was created in the 40s and 50s. So... Also, I had a best friend at the time, still a best friend, who uh, was being raised an only child and had discovered at some point the Andrew Sisters and Tommy Dorsey Orchestra and like big band music and like nobody told him it was weird because he didn't have a sibling. So like we were hanging out in sixth grade listening to that stuff, watching the Marx Brothers and black and white movies. So I, I think that when I saw David Bowie and Bing Crosby, I it, like made a lot more sense. Because I was like encountering these chrono these figures in chronological order, right? Unlike a lot of my peers, to me they were just they were just old dudes wearing turtlenecks and sweaters. It made no sense to me. <laughs> well, and there is a lot to unpack, right? A lot yeah. to unpack. I know y'all have talked about David Bowie a lot. On oh this my god, show. so much. Remember back in what was it episode one thirty one? Oh yeah, with talked Tony about... DeFreeze. Right, 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 right. Yes, one it... of the many, many scumbags in the music industry. <laughs> Such a highlighted scumbag. by rock and roll bedtime stories. <laughs> well, so okay, I can. I, I think this was during the period of the show where we were like, we should just say that this is like 
our our scumbag period. Uh, I can really oversimplify this for the purposes of Ford Momentum, okay? So 1974, Bowie starts to get tired of Tony DeFreeze. Well, suspicious first, and then tired of him. And so he makes friends with another equally destructive force. Do you have any idea what force that would be? Is it named cocaine? <laughs> yeah, it's cocaine, dude. He gets That's his cocaine period. He legit, I don't know if you know this, doesn't remember recording station to station. He He has said that since that is how that's, bad it got that's not that's not good you're spending a <laughs> lot of money and a lot of resources and, and as we know because help. of tony DeFreeze, he didn't have a lot of money during this period no so, yeah, he did not none of that is good yeah but it's important for our story because uh this colors the album low and uh-huh. that will then influence the next album one you might have heard of called heroes heroes maybe my favorite bowie song I'm just going to like I keep I know that's not like a cool choice, but God, I love that song. And I love it so good. It's such an amazing song that can just it is just it's so weird because it it can just be translated so many different ways. I love the the Peter Gabriel um, cover that is on Stranger Things. It's on my nighttime dog walk playlist hell yeah and just, well and how about the who does the other version that was on the godzilla soundtrack uh the wallflowers you ever heard the wallflowers version oh of that song? yes yes so yes. good uh, so back really. to bowie though the low period previous to heroes is fascinating we could we could probably do a whole episode just on this low period because it really shapes the next few years of his career do you know what they call this it's the berlin period not the cocaine reason, period but it is also no, the it, cocaine period <laughs> Yes, it is the Berlin period, and the reason why I am familiar with the Berlin period is because one of my favorite albums ever is U2's Octoon Baby, and U2 literally thanks David Bowie in the liner notes. For the Berlin period? Yes, basically, because they they were inspired by him to go to Berlin back in the you know, late eighties, early nineties and record Octoon baby. Oh, that's, yeah, I did not know that. I forget you are a U2 head. We'll have to have you do some U2 stuff with us. The shortest way to set this up is to say that Bowie tries to make the soundtrack for a man who fell to earth, which I don't know if people know this man who fell to earth, Walter Tevis novel, right? So yeah. yeah so he's the guy who wrote Queens Gambit. That that's the that guy's influence, right? So he, Oh yeah. Yeah. So he, he had a book turned into a movie that starred David Bowie, and then a book turned into a Netflix series <laughs> like a whole 50 years later. Nice. But so Bowie is really into this project, Man Who Fell to Earth. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but um, it's it, you can probably guess from the uh, insinuation of falling from space that it, it definitely fits his vibe. And he decides to make music for it. He thinks that he like they're just going to use whatever music he gives them like that's. And so he creates mm-hmm. this whole soundtrack. And he walks in, and they're like, no, 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 no. We'll listen to it, but we're not promising you anything. And they actually decide they don't want it. And so he is pissed and then starts to work on other stuff. And one of those things is he decides he's going to work with Iggy Pop again. He worked with Iggy and the Stooges in the early 70s, as you might remember. And so now, a few years later, they decide to both leave town and both try to get off of drugs. Because, again, cocaine. This is the cocaine period. Always, always try to get off cocaine with a friend. <laughs> Bring a yeah. friend. Bring a friend. Teamwork, teamwork makes the dream work when it gets <laughs> off the cocaine. Okay, so episode 58, if you want to go deep and remember and think back on Bowie and Iggy's friendship, 
Oh, go back to episode fifty-eight with with the story about him like trying to sneak him out of rehab. So good. Yeah, D- don't miss that. Uh, okay, that's, so that's why you had to have a partner. You know, <laughs> get you out of rehab. Get you out of rehab when one of them. Done with it. Uh, so so low. Back to this record. Low is not like other Bowie records up to this point, right? He's gotten really into mm-hmm. Kraftwerk and New and Tangerine Dream. Uh, this is German, and and he's trying to sound German, and the record label hates it. Wait, wait, wait. Kraftwerk is German sounding. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. So not only does the record label hate it, Tony DeFreeze hates uh-huh, it, which uh-huh. good. Good. I am glad. I'm glad he's pissing him off. I'm glad. 46 years later for it. Okay. So he tries to he tries to make it to where they will not release it because, you know his his royalty sediment. Um. You know he he just gotten that so he wants his he wants his royalty sediment. And remember Tony DeFreeze like never pays anything. Like I was going back over the notes of that show in preparation for this show and I forgot. Like he just he gets all of these like rulings where it's like okay yeah now you have to pay this and you have to pay this and DeFreeze just like never pays you know yeah, that's, that's the what, thing people forget about rulings is that you know yeah that's what scumbags do scumbags <laughs> don't pay so RCA the record label who has this now that Bowie has given them that they don't know what to do with eventually releases it but they do all this stuff to make it try to make it like almost not successful they roadblock it for an extra few months and then because they don't want to promote it Bowie's like fine I don't want to promote it either. And so this is awesome. He just decides to go on tour as Iggy Pop's keyboard player. That's the most gangster shit David <laughs> Bowie could do. And literally, he would go. So people knew who David Bowie was at this time. And I was reading that he would literally come out and like stay in the shadows and not take a bow, not say anything on the mic. He would literally just play keyboards, which is like the thankless thing in the back, typically, in any any setup. Uh, so that's hilarious. So... We, we speed through that because we want to get here. And that is that after that album happens and after this Berlin period has kicked off, Bowie has taken this break and now he's got this next album and that's Heroes. And he has decided because he didn't promote Low at all and it actually ends up being fairly successful. And yeah. he has this totally different attitude about promoting Heroes. Now, two quick really really nerdy things to know give them to us heroes has a lot of brian eno and Mm -hmm. has a lot of uh king cribs uh what's what's the guy's robert fripp yes oh uh, yeah yeah, yeah. he's on that record that's right oh my god yeah 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 october 1477 that's when that record comes out so in the lead up bowie's just saying yes to press so he will do a lot of interviews and a lot of different stuff but he gets a couple of tv offers to record in september in preparation for the fall. So remember, the record comes out in the middle of October, so he's doing all this stuff because it's going to play later in the year. So September 9th, he does the first one. He appears on Mark Bolin's talk show. Did you know Mark Bolin had a talk show? He was originally an actor and a model first. Did you know that? No, and, and that makes total sense, though, because he was like, so he helps invent glam. Right, he wears these big hats and boas. Can I just make an aside as uh, talking about Mark Bolin is? I've always sort of thought of him like I remember the first time I saw him because obviously I knew Guns and Roses first uh, before <laughs> I knew uh, Mark Bolin and T Rex. Uh, but the thing about it was like whenever I saw him first, I was like, oh, he's like a he's like a good looking Slash. Yeah, Slash sort of stole the Mark Bolin and T Rex yes. thing. You're totally right. Yeah. He totally did. That's a great. That's actually a great comment. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, talking about this acting stuff, right? So he was an actor, and he, he meets this guy who becomes his, his second manager. And that guy had been a child actor, and I just read this as an aside, and I had to mention it. He, he ends up selling the contract he had with Mark Bullen to his landlord because he's behind on rent. So can you imagine? It's it's awesome that his he had a first manager, then he had a second manager, that was insane. Who was that bad? So that, right. It's it's like you got to get to your second wife, you got to have a first wife. <laughs> Same thing with a second manager. You got to have a first manager too. Uh, they kind of say that this is maybe even like a kid show. Granada TV in England will give him this show and they'll start airing it in 77. Stuff that I read about it was like Mark Bowen had this kid show. I don't think that's accurate. I don't know if you've watched this, but it's pretty trippy. But it definitely appealed to younger people in general, right? And it featured really cool stuff. Like, the first ever television performance from The Jam happens on this show. I think that's in the show notes. And then September 9th, David Bowie records an episode. There's two things you need to know about these guys back in the mid to late 70s. Number one, T-Rex was actually a lot bigger than Bowie at first. I mean, if you remember, I mean, Bowie wrote all the young dudes uh-huh. and mentioned T Rex in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was giving them a shout out. He was so, climbing the ladder, right? It wasn't it yes. wasn't a, a look down; it was a look up. Yes, yeah. yes. They were kind of frenemies, which I mean, I mean, come on, all all rock stars are sort of frenemies. I mean, they 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 have to like each other and kind of hate each other. Have you seen the quote from the nineteen seventy three Cameron Crowe interview that he did? With, this is ooh, this no, is I not, not good. Okay. Uh, this is Mark Bolin talking to Cameron Crowe. I don't consider David to be even remotely near big enough to give me any competition. I don't think David has anywhere near the charisma or balls that I have. Or that Alice, Alice Cooper, I'm assuming, has. Or Donny Osmond. <laughs> oh, man. That one, that one was not nice. Uh, he's not going to make it in any sort of way. That is Mark Bolin speaking in 1973 about David Bowie. That is rough. That is like whenever I was a kid playing the Nintendo and playing Mike Tyson's Punch Out. The Donny Osmond <laughs> comments when you hit the start button and you do the big uppercut. That that is that is ruthless. Glass Joe is on the floor. Yes, yes. Uh, but. You know, since they hate each other and love each other and everything in between, they do end up supporting each other repeatedly. And the last time is this instance on September 9th. And then two days later, September 11th, 1977, Bowie films this Christmas special with Bing Crosby. He literally does these two days apart, which is wild. So that's a busy week. But, you know, but Bull and Bowie make sense as collaborators. Similar styles, scenes, I mean, they're they're bringing glam together, all that stuff. Now, to the point Evan makes in his letter that kicked off this show, this collab between Bowie and Bing is is a little weird at best. So so what do you yes. how do you lay this out? How do you think this happens? CBS comes to these guys and says, Hey, we we have this idea. And this is the height of, of Bowie as this experimental and avant garde artist right low uh-huh, uh-huh. low still known to be one of the least commercial albums ever uh despite the success it had uh and the respect it gets it, it's still everyone thought it kind of sucked yeah so bowie um, is bowie is not in a family-friendly christmas special stage of his career is what you're saying no he is not he he does not have the yuletide cheer and, and he, um, he doesn't want to do this no he doesn't want to do this but as as merle haggard saying mama tried Mama tried, and Mama won because David Bowie's mother 
you know, who would be a lot more contemporary to Bing Crosby loved Bing Crosby. It's sweet. It's a sweet side note in this story. I always assumed that this was like a musical review. Like when you saw this on MTV, what did you think the larger context of it was? Honestly, I thought it was just cocaine. I thought, <laughs> I thought that's what I did. I mean, that's what, like anytime I watch anything from the 70s, I'm like, these people were on a lot of drugs. <laughs> so speaking of that, it, seeing that performance out of context, I just figured the setting was strange, but it was, you know, some sort of from scene to scene it would cut to different performers or whatever no yeah, no, no 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 like a variety like a variety like show, a variety so, show a musical v- review yeah no what i didn't realize is how damn plot heavy this christmas special was right now i've pulled this read some of the synopsis read just the beginning of the synopsis of what happens on this show okay so <laughs> so here it goes bing crosby is surprised to receive a letter from a long lost relative Sir Percival Crosby. <laughs> By the way, every damn week, the names on this podcast are so choice. Percival Sir Crosby. Percival Crosby inviting the family to spend Christmas in England. Bing, his wife Catherine, and their three children, Harry, Mary, and Nathaniel. First off, okay, so. Harry, Mary, and then this Nathaniel gets named Nathaniel. Like they started rhyming, and then they're like, ah, <laughs> we think they gave rhyming up. bullshit. They gave up. Okay, so Harry, Mary, and Nathaniel they fly off to England, uh, reviewing their family history in song, and hoping <laughs> that the invitation is not a case of mistaken identity. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a bold move to be like, let's just punt our Christmas plans, uh, get on a plane, and go see if this guy really is related to us. So they, they go to Percival's house. They meet his butler, his cook, and his maid. This is all in the first, like, five Obviously. minutes of this. And it, Obviously. At, at some point, I am not making this up, Leif. At some point, the ghost of Charles Dickens shows up, and then Twiggy, the model... I don't know if you know if anybody's into seventies, uh, yeah, seventies yeah, fashion. But Twiggy was a big deal. The model shows up and starts complimenting Charles Dickens, and then there's like a Dickensian musical number, and, and we are not at the halfway point yet. That's not thirty minutes into this hour long special. Oh no, oh no! But in the first half, there's a knock on the door, and it is Percival's neighbor. <laughs> Guess it was. It was David Bowie. It was, it was David, David Bowie. Bowie. And what's he doing? David. Uh, he's just looking for a piano to play. I mean, just like everybody. <laughs> so, as mentioned, Bing's actual family all takes part in this. Those are his real kids and wife, and they really do participate. And since then, there's been several interviews over the years where these kids have given interviews about what it was like to do this, which is awesome. There are some great quotes and all of that. Um, and it really encapsulates like the benign cultural clash that was happening that day. Apparently, Bowie and Angie show up for the shoot, and they are, this is the quote, both wearing full-length mink coats, full makeup, and had short, bright red hair. And I'm sure that's when Bing and <laughs> just said, what in the hell have I got myself into? Oh, man. Bing's son, Nathan, said, it almost didn't happen. I think the producers told him to take the lipstick off and take the earring out. It was just incredible to see the contrast. Well, and if you watch this, 
Bowie is looking pretty clean cut, about as clean cut as Bowie looks during this period at all. So they do, yes. they win that. And that's the, that's only the first conflict. Bowie gets in there and they hand him the music for little drummer boy. Apparently this way had not been discussed. And he tells them, no, he says exactly what I would say. I hate this song. <laughs> Is there something else I could sing? Because I agree with David Bowie, Little Drummer Boy is the worst Christmas song ever. It's the season of giving, and we have been given a gift from our friends at Audio Engine. Yeah, the studio for Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories has gotten a a bit of an upgrade. We've got brand new speakers from our friends at Audio Engine, and I got to say, they're really nice. Not only are they really nice, they're also really versatile. Not only will they plug into our systems here, allow for great playback when we're editing shows and listening to songs uh, before and after recording sessions... They're also great for Bluetooth capabilities. We can move them around the house, and they've got this deep sound, deeper than the sort of audio you're used to listening to on your Bluetooth speaker in your kitchen. So they're great when we go you know, make the snacks, and then when we come in the studio, we plug them back in and, and keep the good sound going uh, for the show. If you're an audiophile like us, you are. You're listening to this show. You love rock and roll. It's going to sound really good when you upgrade your listening experience uh, with our friends from Audio Engine. And here's the really sweet thing. You can support the show and upgrade your audio all at the same time. The folks at Audio Engine willing to throw us a bone for every speaker at every piece of equipment that they sell uh, through our link in the show notes. So if you're going to check out Audio Engine, just go ahead, uh, pull open the app you have open to listen to the show, click on that link for Audio Engine. Uh, and if you purchase, once you're on that link, we get a little kickback too. It's a really nice way to support the show and say happy holidays to yourself and to us and to the other music lovers in your life. So when you know they've been asking you what you want for Christmas, here you go. Send them the link. Now, to understand the struggle and the pressure these producers are under, it's worth reminding that this is 1977 and Bing Crosby is 74 years old at this point. There are two vastly different accounts from David Bowie in what he, he says about this incident, okay, and how, how sound of mind Bing was. Uh, in 1978, a year later, Bowie said this. He was fantastic. That old man knew everything about everything. He knew rock and roll backwards. Even if he didn't know the music, I'm g- glad I met him. Now, that's, okay. that's the promo to a response. Yes. And that, yes, because, I mean, he knew rock and roll backwards, even if no, he, he didn't, didn't know the music. No, he didn't. What does what that even that? mean? <laughs> that doesn't mean it. That is word salad, David Bowie. <laughs> somebody that somebody so, gave him that. Some that manager was such, like, say this. Such fluff, such promo stuff. Yeah. But in 1999, you know, 22 years later, he gets asked about it in a different setting, and he says something very different. He was not all he was not there at all. And then he described being as looking like an old orange sitting on a stool. <laughs> That's almost as good as the other thing. What does that mean? An old orange? Just a rotten piece of fruit just shriveled <laughs> up, I guess. I don't know, but uh, that's that should definitely be the next time I I need to insult somebody. I'm gonna I should just say you look, you just like, look a, like an old orange. You just look like an old orange on a stool. If you're these producers and you're trying to make this show and you've got a fragile aging star and a bizarre ego driven artist and you get all the way to the set and then you get thrown this curveball, what do you do? I would have just done a lot more cocaine back then, <laughs> but uh, the scriptwriter and the two musical supervisors. They found a piano in the basement, 
and they hold up for about an hour and they come out with this other song they've written for Bowie to sing over top of Bing Crosby. I mean, that's that's what happens, right? Like, that's really what is happening. Like, I had to, like, go back and watch it. And I was like, oh, they basically just were like, Bing, sing Little Drummer Boy. Bowie, sing this garbage we just wrote. And it is a very weird addendum to the song. And it it, it somehow works perfect. The, the story goes that they practice for less than an hour and they do three takes and that's the final product we are we all still know 45 years later now i've read that part of bowie's complaint is that their arrangement of little drummer boy does not highlight his range and in the first like 30 seconds of this when they're singing it together you can hear that like he's singing low and it's not it, it doesn't sound like bowie and what they write him is this very lyrically hokey song called peace on earth and if you go back like most of these like non-sacred Christmas-related songs, the lyrics are garbage. They're just absolutely ridiculous. Peace on Earth oh, is one yeah. of those. It, if you, it, It's beautiful. I love it. But then you listen to what he's saying, and it's like, what is he? This is garbage. Anyway, it does sound like Bowie, and it's sort of haunting. And I think that part of the reason that this catches on is that Bowie and Bing somehow both sound like themselves. It's It's weird lightning in a bottle. And you mentioned the song is catching on. They had no plans for this to be anything except some dumb TV show. Okay, there was never any. Really? There was never any grand plan to release "Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy" as a recording. So, because of that, the original sixteen-track master tape of the recording gets erased. Unbelievable. So, could I? Should I tell you this story? Uh, I don't know if I ever told this story on the podcast before, speaking of erasing things. So when I was in radio, there was this art center in the town that I was working in. And they were like, hey, we have this new artist. And he's coming in in January. And we want you to do all this promotional radio stuff. And I thought I was too cool to just pawn some guy I'd never heard of who didn't have any hits that we were playing on the radio station And so I was like, sure. And I knew we had to do it from a business perspective, like the sales department wanted the ad money. And so they bring this guy in and he's disarmingly charming, like so nice, super cool. And I go back to record this interview with him and like, I basically don't even worry about turning everything on correctly because I have no intention of ever airing this. Right. So we do this whole interview and then I like either deleted it like these guys did after they, after the television program or I, I, it may have never recorded right in the first place, and I like didn't care. And then, yeah. and then Michael Bublé became huge, <laughs> and I, and I, I did not have <laughs> the Michael Bublé interview that I had done <laughs> because I was an a hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, no proof that I hung out with Michael Bublé for an extended period of time, uh, and he was awesome. And I feel, I still feel. Like a jerk for treating Michael Bublé like that, but uh, hey, listen, it happens to the best of us, and that's what happened here. They just decided they didn't care, and so they just got rid of the master tapes. It ends up on the bootleg circuit. I, I'd like to imagine that Murdoch, as a child, tried to get like Ingwe Malmsteen in Zurich and the Bowie uh, <laughs> Bean Crosby bootleg from his guy in Canada. I don't know if that oh yes, or not. That, you got to eat. Hey, you got to remember, you got to trade the Maxwell tapes. Okay, the <laughs> Maxwells were the good ones, but. We, we we do understate the bootleg trading thing sometimes on this show and how much of an effect it's going to have on music during this time period. You can see, like, sitting in our chairs now and looking backwards in musical history, 
how important that is as the stepping stone to what will become the internet, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, absolutely. Uh, you, I mean, I can just imagine sitting there and being like, at some point realizing if technology ever catches up and makes this easy, this is going to change everything. By 1982, RCA Records wants to issue the recording as an official single, but they don't have the recording because it was a race. So that is why it sounds so bad. Well, the vocal. I remember playing was, this on the radio, you know, in the last 20 years and being like, why does this sound like garbage? That's why this song sounds like garbage. There's not a good recording of it because it came from the boom microphone. A boom. <laughs> a boom microphone. Some, some dude's just sitting there holding a the microphone. That's how it was recorded. Clearly, the British world does not mind the fidelity of the recording. Uh, the single does not do great in America initially, but it's huge in the UK, and then eventually we over here in the States will clob onto that craze and obviously gets tons of airplay. And like I said, I was playing it when I was in radio oh, up, up through the last I, 10 years. Hey, I'm not kidding you. It was a it was a mainstay on MTV back in the day. There is a morbid thing about this whole story that oh, you haven't mentioned. Do yet. tell. There so there are there are some weird coincidences, okay? So you brought up the two TV appearances. Uh-huh. Bowie and Bing, of course, but also the Mark Bolin show appearance. They recorded they were recorded two days apart, right? Right. Uh-huh. Okay, within a few weeks, basically before both of these shows aired, both Bing Crosby and Bolin dead. Do you know the story about how Bing dies? Bing Crosby died exactly where Bing Crosby <laughs> wanted to die. He did. He did. It's unbelievable. So essentially they record this Christmas special September eleven. October thirteenth, seventy four year old Bing flies to Spain to play golf and partridge hunt. And I understand that I have saying partridge in a pear tree most of my yeah. life, but I, I mean, I knew it was a bird, but I didn't really know people just went on partridge hunts. Uh, honestly, whenever I read partridge hunt the first time, I thought, oh, please, can someone save Danny Bonaducci? <laughs> October, uh, oct- oh my God. Yeah, October so, 14th. He's at the oct- golf course near Madrid and he plays 18 holes. And at the ninth hole, there's construction workers building a house nearby, and they recognize him. I love this little addendum to this story. And ask him to sing a song. Can we stop down? When you see a singer, I've met a few famous people. Do you stop and be like, please put on display the talent for which I know you? Absolutely not. That's like asking That's like asking a comedian, please tell me a joke. You Who are these animals? Just, Who are these animals that are like, Bing Crosby, sing me a song. But whatever. He's seeing Strangers in the Night. That's how the story goes, apparently. Which is... That's, that's a choice. <laughs> it's not his song, right? I mean, is, is, no. he, is he fucking with them? Is he like, oh, they think I'm Frank Sinatra? I don't think anyone ever confused Bing Crosby and <laughs> Frank Sinatra. <laughs> Crosby wins this golf, and then they decide to go back to the clubhouse, him and his crew. So he says to them, these are his last words, that was a great game of golf, fellas. Let's go have a Coca-Cola. And then 20 yards from the clubhouse entrance, he collapses and dies. Massive heart attack. Instantly. Done. And he's the only person ever in the 1970s to die of that kind of coke. (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you were waiting for that joke. Uh, okay, so dude, that's the fucking way to go. I hope that's how I go out. I hope you and I are just like at a movie or we're watching a band together and I just look at you and I'm like, let's go have a Coca-Cola and then boom, lights out, no pain, nothing. Just straight yeah. from hardcore kicking it to hardcore kicking the bucket. We're just out. <laughs> so the proximity of these deaths... I'm sorry to be laughing at death, but it's just, I mean, come on. That's, that's where we're at. The proximity of these deaths, the Bowie's uh, last experience with these guys, it freaks him out. I mean, Bowie, obviously, big ego, lots of narcissism. This is a quote. I was seriously getting worried about whether I should appear on TV because everyone I was going on with was kicking it the following week. What kind of ego do you have to have to think that if you go in front of a camera with somebody, they're going to die? That's like that's like terrible 80s horror movie logic. Yeah, who do you schedule your next appearance with if you're like, I need to test this power out, and we need to just find out for sure. But I also, you know... Need to do it with somebody who I'm not going to be too sad about if they. Uh... Oh, what he could he could have gone on with the what was it what was uh what was the guy that we talked about uh, during the mosh pit with the Sex Pistols? Uh, what's his name? Grundy. Oh yeah, yeah. that's who you should have went on with. <laughs> Dude, that's totally who you should have gone with. So they are they're still in photography on this Bing Crosby special when he dies. This is another great little music trivia thing if you're playing music trivia this holiday. So in '77, CBS airs two musical specials posthumously. Do you have any idea what the first one was? I was born on October 11, 1977. Do I know who died about a month before me? Yes, it had to be Elvis in concert, right? Yeah, buddy, nailed it. This becomes a wildly influential collaboration right bowie and bing I, I think we find echoes of this collaboration for decades one of them that feels most cut from this cloth to me is uh tony bennett and lady gaga which has happened in Ooh. the last 10 years you remember this they they made some pretty good music together I, I think the story there is that they meet at a gala in new york city and tony asks gaga to do a duet with them because he's doing a duets record so and- wait he he met Gaga at a gala. <laughs> just listen. I'm just hanging on this evening with being articulate, so don't push me. Uh, so it does sound like a children's book. From there, it turns into a much larger project. And I, I think their motivation is like to make it easier to get the kids into jazz standards or something. But there's been two of these records, uh, 2014 and then one just back in 2021. Now, I did start to think about other odd pairs, right? And specifically Mm -hmm. odd pairs around the holidays. And this Bowie Bing moment makes me consider another Christmas duet from the 70s. And I'm curious. I'm very curious if you have any personal relationship with this. What was your experience with John Denver and the Muppets? Oh, John Denver was on the Muppet show every other week, it seemed like, whenever I was growing up. So, you know, he, he and Henson were buddies. Yes, by 1979, he was like not a guy that music guys respected anymore, right? But yeah, he and he's like sort of this lost, you know, there's just like not room for that music as the 80s are moving in and punk is happening, all that stuff's happening. So he does a Christmas together with the Muppets, and this starts to make him into an entertainer. So he can leave like the musician thing behind and just be like this guy on TV with the Muppets. And that's why he's on the Muppets all the time. He was on the Muppets all the time. And I mean, he was John Denver. I mean, 
he kind of looked like a Muppet. <laughs> Leif. All kidding aside here, you have texted me in the past year on your Spotify Discovery Weekly when Prisoners. a John Denver Prisoners. song will come on. That song yeah. rips. Prisoners and rips. Yeah, John Denver's legit. No, There's no John Denver hate here. There's a piece from a Muppet fan form I ran across with, which I feel ridiculous saying that sentence out wow. loud. I know. A Muppet fan <laughs> Forum. What was the website? Please tell me the website. Like, it was it something funny? It was, yeah, Please tell me it was something it was, funny. It's in the show notes. I think it's Tough Pigs. I think it's toughpigs.com. Oh, uh, yes. So they talk about this cultural phenomenon of the Muppets and this guy's point of view. And I actually think the criticism is pretty bright on this um, on this fan forum. He thinks that yes, John Denver and Jim Henson were pals. And yes, it repositioned Denver in the cultural it kind of program slightly. But more than that, he thinks there was some strategy from Henson's standpoint in trying to make Muppets a Christmas brand by tying them to Denver because this was a place Denver was already comfortable with because he'd kind of been written off from rocks. So we'd already had another Christmas album. He'll go yeah. on. Do you know how many Christmas albums he does? Four. Four, Four Christmas, Christmas albums over the course of his career. Now, this is with the Muppets, the second one, but he is a Christmas guy. And then when, you know, and again, we have a little bit of an age difference here, but for me, the the touchstone of the Muppets and Christmas is when in the early nineties, they do the Muppets Christmas Carol. It is. It is the Christmas Carol, the way it Dickens to be wanted told. it to be. I mean, <laughs> and I, I know this because being Crosby asked him when he was on his Christmas special. <laughs> Obviously. But Obviously. so that I think is really, and it's funny. Like I, we watched that so much as as a kid. I, I, we didn't really make it a tradition, but it was just on every Christmas. Like it was just always there. And yeah. I forget that it's like a touchstone other people have. And then this time of year kicks around, and people will be trading memes with like Rizzo the Rat, and you know all the all the other. When I think of Tiny Tim, I think of Tiny Tim from the Muppets Christmas Carol. <laughs> Like yes. I, that's who I picture, not the the freaking Muppet. Um, okay, but it, there's there's one other Christmas collab that I think we have to mention before we wrap up here, okay. and that is uh, a little more pertinent to what we normally talk about on this show. It, earlier this year, we talked for several episodes about Ozzy Osbourne. As part of that, we had to talk, of course, about the Osbournes, the reality show. So amazing, amazing TV people that did not live through that time do not understand how amazing and captivating that show was. It really was. You're right. And it's very hard to go backwards and look at it and understand. But if you did not have context or anything like that beforehand to see that thing explode in front of your eyes, it was it was marvelous. And Ozzy Ozzy Osbourne playing with the little James Brown doll that sang and, (laughs) and, and danced. I could watch that for hours. So during the height of the Osbournes in 2003, MTV is doing an Osborne Christmas special, as you do. And of course. they're thinking corporate synergy. And so about three months before the Christmas special airs, they had launched another reality show that will go on to be a very big cultural touchstone for a very brief period of time. It runs for two seasons, and it is called Newlyweds. And it stars Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey. Did you ever watch this garbage? Oh, it was rough. <laughs> like, Jessica Simpson was... Uh, listening to her talk, 
and the whole chicken in the sea and just the mm-hmm. stuff that she would say, it was, you just kept on thinking. I mean, there, there's definitely some cultural criticism that I'm sure 20 years on we can point back at and say, like, you know, MTV was really making women look stupid and, and really hurt the career of Jessica Simpson, whatever. That's probably all true. But what I just want to say is that they also put her in a Winter Wonderland music video with Ozzy Osbourne for this Christmas special. And you can find it in the show notes. It's it's tough. And it's tough because they act out all of the things that you do in Winter Wonderland, like building a snowman, being by the fire, all this sort of stuff. And it's just very strange. And and I will say we'll put any any qualms you have about any of the of the other duets that we've talked about on this program up to this point, it, it will put them in perspective. Because well, it's it's just, uncomfortable now. And it's funny because it's been mostly buried. It's like sort of hard to find. The weird thing to me would be to think that, that Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness, who is always wearing black, in the middle of a winter wonderland, thematically, that does not – that is <laughs> – It's too much, it's too much whiteness. Not, that's, yeah, that's not good for your eyes, I wouldn't think. Uh, you make a very good point. You make a very good point. Uh, wow, that was quite the ride. Thank you for the letter. We are the story guys at gmail.com if you want to get involved. And Leif, thank you so much for uh, for sitting in for Murdoch this week. Anytime. And if you want to support the show, patreon.com is a place you can do that, backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. You can also uh, check out all of the things that we have going on uh, via Instagram, backslash rock and roll bedtime stories, or Facebook backslash the story guys and until next time what should people keep doing like keep telling stories rock and roll bedtime stories is a story guys production the show is produced and edited by brian eichenberger get more stories hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at we are the copyright boy have we got stories productions all rights reserved <laughs>